it's appropriate to look at free, so-called free energy in a holistic manner to see the context of how it sits within the scheme of things. Now, Nikola Tesla knew, such as what I know from under simulation work, that in theory alone, exclusively, <laughs> underline theory, alone, exclusively, there is no limit to the amount of reactive power that you can have in a circuit. Truth be told, there is a limit because of the, merely because of the materials of construction will tolerate so much and no more before the circuit it destroys itself. And there's a reason for this, and I'm going to explain it. He tested coils. He tested the dielectric of capacitors using extreme voltage, extreme frequency, and he had coils of copper wire blow up into nano-sized particles of copper dust, and he poked holes through the dielectric of his capacitors. So he found out what the limit was, and then stayed within those limits to keep um, highly efficient. So why does that happen? Why does copper wire explode? Literally, the copper atoms that are normally bound together to form copper wire, how is it that they can explode and separate from each other with such violent force and, and at such an atomic level that they are no longer bound to each other and you end up with copper atoms floating around in space, <laughs> too lightweight to fall to the ground, and they just blow away with the wind and oxidize and fall back to the earth and re, re, you know, recycle their material back to the earth where they came from. Well, let's go to the Earth, the starting point of it all. When you get copper ore, it's basically dirt. What we call copper ore, but it's basically dirt because it does not hold together. It's been molecularly or atomically modified by the oxidation process to remain separate, atomically separate from each other and not bind together such as what we managed to produce when we smelt copper ore and turn it into pure copper metal at high temperatures and then we cool it and extrude it and shape it and we got ourselves copper wire. Well, what's going on with that? What's going on is that we heated it up so now to make to smelt copper ore to separate the slag so to speak, you know, the oxidation part you know, I guess it could be oxygen, sulfur, it could be any uh, any number of compounds that we don't want in pure copper um, wire. Um, so we heat it up so that now this copper, pure copper molten ore, is radiating heat. Now, this is an exothermic state, thermal state of the copper. And in this state, the copper will bind with each other to form valence electron bondages among the outer shell electron shells of the copper atoms to form copper wires so that it can transmit electricity. Otherwise, it won't be able to. The ore will get in the way, the, the slag, the oxidation portion will get in the way if we don't remove it. Um, so it's of no uh, consequence to study the slag. What is of consequence is to study what happens when we remove the slag at high temperatures, and that is that the valence electron, since it was 
it, it was, it's exothermic. It's radiating heat when we heat it up and melt it. Um, and the slag either falls to the bottom or it floats to the top or both, and then we can skim it off and whatnot. What happens is the valence electrons are, have lost energy, and that's exhibited by the exothermic reaction. And in the energy they've lost is what I guess was shared with them by the slag, but preventing us from forming copper wire to get electricity or to get circuits, electrical circuits, out of the copper. <clears throat> Especially electric motors to run our electric cars, which are big consumers of current. They're hogs of current. Um, so it gave up its energy, its valence energy. The copper gave it up when the slag was thermally separated under extreme temperatures such that the copper molten copper um, pure uh, remaining metal is radiating heat. It's exothermic. So c consider this in mind. When we're looking at a copper wire, it's actually deficient in energy. It's no small wonder that we think we got to supply energy in order to run a circuit. But that's not the case due to reactive power. Reactive power is a godsend because it there are three different ways for it to, to increase energy in the circuit not f coming from the source. And one of those ways is to steal it from the environment. It's normally called energy harvesting if it's from natural sources, such as the ambient energy of the environment, or it's theft if it takes it from a nearby power line, transmission line. That's just one way for reactive power to get the energy back into the copper that we took away when we formed the copper wire in the first place. That's what reactive power is doing. It's doing what nature would like to do, is to take the copper back to its native state as an ore, an oxidized ore that is basically dirt. It wants to return it back to the state of dirt copper ore dirt. That's what reactive power wants to do. And that's what it tries to do. Now we know this because when we look at Leroy Rogers' um, air compression device in Florida, he's got like three patents now. He's been working qu very quietly. <laughs> he was not a... He, was, uh, he turned down the big three automakers a combined billion dollar offer which he feels was, they were going to shelve his uh, his patent because they wanted exclusive rights, so he turned them down. And he's just been working very quietly these past four decades on his own, developing and further modifying and impro making improvements. And when it runs, one of the uh, descriptions that people gave is that it develops a layer of ice on the engine block in his converted car that he converted to run off of self-compressing air as he drives along. It makes its own compressed air. Um, and this shows that even f in his device that's not electrical, he's absorbing heat from his environment. That's why it ices up, because only by icing up will it absorb heat from its environment 
It's not going to work any other way. And so it's literally returning the engine block to its previous state of non-purified iron or whatever it is that the engine block is made out of in a normal car, in an internal combustion engine car. And this is basically one of the ways that reactive power gets energy into the circuit to return the materials of construction of the circuit back to their natural state as dirt. This is what reactive power wants to do. It wants to destroy the circuit and take it back to its nat- by taking it back to its natural state. Because everything we do is a modification of nature. You know, we very rarely do we work with nature. <laughs> very often we struggle to control nature and overpower and dominate nature. And this is what we do when we smelt various metals to get their pure versions so we can create a circuit or an engine block or whatever it is we want to create. Reactive power wants to do the opposite. And that's probably why we don't use it. Because it's stressful to the circuit, eventually causing uh, the circuit to have to be replaced, its parts replaced with replacement parts because it's going to wear them out and destroy them eventually. Now the question is, to what degree does it, what's the rate of destruction? Of, you know, it's kind of like recycling materials. Uh, a free energy circuit is trying to return it back to its natural, the materials back to their natural state so that they can be recycled in a, in, in a sense. Um, anyway. Well, Obviously, we want to keep that minimized so that um, we don't allow uh, the uh, free energy, so-called free energy circuit to self-destruct overnight. We want to get some you know, years out of it, right? So that has to do with the efficiency of the build. How well does it do its job without quickly destroying itself? That's pretty important. But... I'm just trying to describe the mechanics so we understand the context of how free energy fits into the scheme of things. It has its natural place in the order of things, and we never study it, so we don't know to put it there, let alone just studying it for study's sake, whatever. Now, there are other ways to get energy into the circuit, but reactive or power or, or, excuse me, there's other ways to get reactive power into the circuit, but um, that's just one, is energy harvesting or outright theft, depending on where it's coming from. Another way is recycling energy. So we give it a little energy and it uses it more than once, instead of using it once and sending it back to the source and destroying the source, such as of a battery, destroying the voltage potential between the terminals. Uh, a third way, though, is where conservation of energy breaks down. And that is when we step aside, so to speak, and allow mostly voltage, I think is usually the case. We step aside and allow voltage for the dominant transient surge. We allow it to enter the circuit early on when we turn on the circuit. It, Mother Nature wants it to enter the circuit. And it comes there in the form of imaginary power. Pure reactive power devoid of of much real power component to speak of. It's mostly made out of imaginary power. Which there's no proof 
for the existence of imaginary power. Yet that's what's entering the circuit to form a transient surge. Mostly exhibited is high voltage spikes of very low current, and so consequently the wattage is hardly there, and so nobody thinks much uh, of it, but they t- the nature of that surge energy is such that it's lossless. And if we can, not only is it lossless, but it's self-compounding. So that if we construct the circuit properly, that surge will self-compound at an exponential rate. Now, because our simulators are based on base 10 number system, it tends to grow at that rate, base 10, logarithmically. But that's not the way it happens in nature. Uh, reports come in that it happens at the base 2 rate, which is more reasonable. Um, in, regardless of the rate of exponentiation, that rate can change. I've seen it happen. Once it uh, gets going for a long enough duration, it's not exponential anymore. It's, um, it's like a vertical e- explosion, basically. And in some rare cases, there's no exponential, gradual, hyperbolic, uh, logarithmic uh, increase at all. It just explodes instantaneously, and there's no way to find out how quickly that occurred. It just was instantaneous, basically. And that's what I wrote my paper on um, when I noticed that MicroCap 12 gave me the chance to see that when a transient surge occurs at the beginning of a, a simulation runtime, that time goes backwards during that brief transient surge moment. But I think that's a hallmark of the software engineer's consciousness. They only see things a certain way. That For, uns- for one thing, they, they don't see free energy as being possible, and so they use matric- matrix algebra as a shortcut for doing the computations and calculations to produce the results that are then traced, virtually traced in the oscilloscope tracings of the uh, simulation runtime. And so um, the matrix algebra gets in the way, makes it difficult to come up with a free energy circuit uh, design, Um, but it's never impossible, it's just difficult. So uh, this is one more instance of narrow mind or slanted um, consciousness in the direction, oh, conservation of energy is a law, it's a given, everybody uh, agrees. No, I don't, because the simulator allows for a transient in which time goes backwards, and nobody's bothered to study that. I just kind of stumbled across it. And then I got curious when I stumbled across a function, the um, energy function and the power function, and I thought, why don't I divide one into the other and see what happens? And lo and behold, time went backwards. But I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's really a discrepancy of how time is kept within the domain of the energy within the circuit so that there's a discrepancy. So it looks like time went backwards when in reality there's one section of the circuit in which time is, has slowed down relative to another section in which it has not, or the other way around, actually, and no, actually the other way around, time is sped up in a different section of the, in, in, in a section of the energy of the circuit, because it becomes a composition of frequencies at that point, in which a parasitic frequency occurs at a much higher frequency than the input frequency, and that elevated frequency is what's causing a discrepancy of time for the energy itself. 
so that it appears to overall, the net result is that it appears that the energy has gone backwards. Um, because that's the original, uh, because that's using the original input frequency as the reference, whereas the parasitic frequency is much faster. And so it, um, I guess what happens is the parasitic frequency takes over, but the simulator can't acknowledge that, and so explicitly, or I don't know how to make it do so. So what I do see, though, it can do so, is that it will make it, it will say, well, time has gone backwards; it's slowed down because the timepiece of the input frequency is no longer the dominant frequency uh, in terms of amplitude. It has dropped off to uh, seeming insignificance by comparison to the parasitic frequency whose amplitude is growing by leaps and bounds. Um, well, <laughs> that's my way of interpreting. It's a little convoluted, but it's the only way I can see why it, it, the, the simulation makes it look overall that time has gone backwards. It's not that it's gone backwards, it's that it's slowed down, and it's not the overall um, energy that's slowed down, it, uh, it's time frame. It's the input has is slower, even though it's constant, it's, you know, like it's 30,000 cycles per second, it's constant, but it's slower with with regard to the parasitic frequency, which is running at 150,000 cycles per second. So that's considerably, considerably slower. And that might be why the energy self-compounds, because the presence of the parasitic frequency remains. It doesn't go away. And so it compounds its differential of time against the input frequency consistently over time accumulating an accumulation of, of acceleration of amplitude of energy. I think that's why that happens. You know, we keep wondering where does the free energy come from and I think that's it. It's because there's a discrepancy of time because when we look at time, it's artificial, man-made. We, we got clocks and that's totally man-made. From the standpoint of oscillating energy, an oscillating waveform, the only time it knows is its frequency. That, it, that's, it doesn't know any other time. And if it's only a single frequency, that's fine and dandy, but the simulator is trying to make sense of this new complex uh, twist in which now there's at least two frequencies going on, the parasitic frequency and the input frequency. And it has to make sense of it all. And that, this is the best that it can do, is to make it look like a transient time has gone backwards in, during the brief moment of a transient surge. Okay? But this is the reality of what nature wants to do in one of its three aspects of reactive power. It literally wants... Now, let, let's talk about where that um, surge came from. It came from the ether, which Eric Dollard likes to call counterspace, and regardless, it's not physical. And it can only be hinted at, suggested by imaginary numbers, which Descartes, the philosopher, 
from several centuries ago in derision named the square root of negative one imaginary because he thought it was pretty bizarre that mathematicians should put so much faith in something that does not exist. It's purely a, uh, a construct of the, of the mind of the mathematician, yet it works. The math works for over a century, dating back to at least Oliver Heaviside, in the format of testimonials of what works, what doesn't work. When you do the math, what can you expect to happen on the bench? It comes out kind of close, close enough, without much, too much error, to validate from the standpoint of testimonials, not from the standpoint of any kind of physical proof, because that's not physical proof, that the square root of negative one as a concept does work to um, keep track of reactive power. And at least the imaginary portion of the complex enumeration of a reactive power. Now, if your math teacher asks you to test your results, don't just assume them to be correct. Plug the answer back in and see if it works during exam time in your math class in high school. And you've got the square root of negative one sitting in front of your face. There's no way you're going to take the answers and plug them in. You're going to get two, any square root, you're going to have two possible answers for the square root of a positive number, and you're supposed to plug them in and see which one works. Maybe only one works. Maybe they both work. But with a square root of negative one, you don't even have answers to plug in to check for results, for the accuracy of results. This is why Descartes, in derision, named them imaginary numbers, because you can't even check your answer to see if it's right or not. You know, this is what the teacher said, the math teacher. You know, reality check. Check to see, because sometimes, you know, you can do the right math and come up with two answers, but only one works if it's the square root of a positive number rather than both being. And, and, and so you have to take the one that works. You can't just assume they both work and, and write down both as your answer. You're going to get a, a mark on that one against you on that test. So this is the ridiculousness of imaginary numbers uh, taking them seriously from a scientific standpoint. And this is where science bridges into religion. Because we literally have been taking on faith the square root of negative one. All these decades, more than a century, and we have no choice. Now, I'm going to relate to you one last little tidbit. It doesn't stop with math, how ridiculous it is for science to expect physical proof for every single cotton-picking thing in its scientific body of knowledge. It is so stupid, it's unbelievable. But let me uh, bridge the gap and let's, you know... Rudyard Kipling said in his uh, All the Mowgli stories, uh, the opening uh, preface, East is, is East, West is West, never the twain shall meet. And that's wrong. We have yoga coming out of the East like crazy, making meditation ever so popular in the last 50 years. So let's try bridging that gulf once more. When we go into Ayurveda, when we have an Ayurvedic physician take your pulse he's not looking 
for your vital signs as a Westerner will be doing. He doesn't look for your pulse rate or your blood pressure. He's looking for, if I got this straight to remember, snake, frog, swan. Does that sound ridiculous or what? But Ayurvedic pulse diagnosis is not predicated on the objective scientific method. It's predicated on the subjective scientific method in which the physician's intuition now is at stake. He either has the gift or he doesn't. And he can do work at developing it. And so looking for snake, frog, swan is intended to help you develop your intuition so that you can look at the doshas of the patient's blood to see what they tell you may be wrong with the, phys- with the patient's health. Because the snake represents the vata dosha, the frog represents the pitta dosha, and the swan represents the kapha dosha. Now, when I took pulse diagnosis in the 80s, I was a natural. I didn't even have to take a pulse to tell you what was wrong with you. All you had to do was stand in front of my face because I already knew what to look for in the person's aura, what I had already been taught to look for in their pulse. And I could say right away, you eat too much fruit. But I knew right away it was a waste of time to tell that person that because I knew they wouldn't take my advice. Oh, I love fruit. And she's got a whole bunch of fruit on her plate, you know, on her luncheon plate. Oh, and she stuck her wrist out in front of me. Oh, take my pulse. You just finished the course. Oh, take my pulse. Uh, with, With hesitancy, did I tell her? What I and I went through the motion of taking your pulse, but I already knew what was wrong, and that she would not take my advice. So I I really didn't want to get involved, but I I was kind of shoved into the situation. And you know what? After that, I vowed never again do I want to take anybody's pulse and tell them what's wrong with them. Blah blah blah. Because if that's the kind of consciousness, the stupidity I got to deal with, it's no wonder they're sick. <laughs> they do it to themselves. I think most of the time that's really all it amounts to. We do it to ourselves. Anyway, now, the whole point of that diversion is that the doshas, you can take someone's pulse because the doshas exist in physical manifest space. They are the, despite the fact that it's a subjective technique, you are looking for something that is objective, that exists in the physical realm. But it's a mirage, it's a beat frequency. It's like a beat frequency. It's the product of the blending of the, of the gunas. And the gunas don't exist in physical space. They exist in counter space. They are imaginary, and yet the rishis of old cognize them. Yet they are the causative factor. They are the causation. Not the factor. They are the sole causation of the doshas be, uh, resulting from the blending of the gunas. So if you got three gunas, Satwa, Rajas, and Tamas, if you blend uh, Satwa with, with Rajas, you get Vada dosha. If you blend um, the um, Raja, Raja guna with the uh, Tamasic guna, you get the Kapa, uh, no, you get the Pitta dosha. And then if you blend the tamasic guna with the sattvic guna, you get the kapadosha. And yet these byproducts of the blending of the gunas are fictions. They're, they're 
in the sense that they're not real. They're not the parent um, waveform that spawned them. They are the daughter waveform brought about by um, blending the parent waveforms. And the parent waveforms don't exist in the physical. They are in the non-physical realm, the etheric realm. Yet their byproduct is physical in the physical realm. So it's it's science it has to grow up and recognize that reality is a blend of what can be proven along with what cannot be proven. Physical and non-physical both. Because when you look at the word Akasha, I'm sorry, one more sidebar. When you look at the word Akasha, when Max Mueller did his Sanskrit-English translation dictionary back in the 1800s, you can look up the copy in the UCLA Research Library. They have the original version, along with the uh, more recent editions, which I'm going to get to in a minute. But the original version had the translation of the word Akasha into English. The translation was Ether. And then, if you look at the most recent edition of Max Mueller's uh, Sanskrit-English Dictionary online, now yeah, the translation from Akasha, from Sanskrit into English of the word Akasha is space. And this perplexed me at first when I first discovered this over ten years ago, this discrepancy of how the translation has changed over time. I explained it originally as, well, you know, scientific, scientific opinion has changed, blah, blah, blah. Uh-uh, nothing has changed. In reality, both translations are true because the way Sanskrit works, they tend to be more holistic than we are. We've got a word for everything. The holistic uh, point of view, the, the, the detailed view, the applied version, all kinds of different versions of the same thing. And uh, the, sans uh, the, the Sanskrit language is much more simpler and terse in its approach by being holistic. So, when it says, when you see Akasha, you're really looking at both versions of, a, of what we call, or what Eric Dollard would call, space and counterspace. So they don't make a distinction between the two. They're just both there, and it's called Akasha. And that's my understanding now <laughs> as to what's going on, why this seeming discrepancy, and why did Michelson and Morley never find evidence of the background etheric field in space because it's not in space. You'd have to infer somehow by, by uh, some kind of weird approach. Not really that weird because reactive power is called reactive to infer that it's a response to the application of real power. In fact, my version of Ohm's law is that, just that. Not voltage squared divided by resistance equals watts, but applied real voltage times reactive voltage divided by various impedances, including resistance within a framework of time, equals watts. Well, actually, <laughs> no. It doesn't equal watts anymore. It equals joules, because it's in a framework of time. Oh, but we can't uh, teach the student that complicated version of Ohm's law. They'd never get it in the beginning. Do you ever teach the complicated version to the advanced students of electrical engineering? No. They're liars. We're filled with liars. Anyway.
So I think that completes this recording. How does a reactive circuit, the materials of construction, explain what reactive power is doing? It's, it's taking the materials of construction back to their natural state by attempting to destroy the, the materials of construction by oxidizing the copper, blah, 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 and turning everything into dust. This is what reactive power wants to do, whether or not we allow it to do it. Now, there was a fellow back in 2008 I read in which he didn't have, much like my simulations, he didn't have a way to regulate this exponential rise of power that his circuit was exhibiting. And he could time with a stopwatch, and it was never failed. The minute he, the second, the instant he turned on his circuit, how many seconds it would take before it fried itself? The insulation on the coils would melt, uh, melt off, and short circuit the coils, and there'd be arcing and smoking, and uh, probably his capacitor dielectrics uh, broke down and cracked and exhibited uh, punctures within their dielectric. It never failed, and he didn't know how to fix it, how to develop his circuit any further to prevent that from happening. So his, it was a great demonstration of overunity and free energy and violation of conservation of energy, but um, it had no practical use. So now I think I'm done with all my sidebars to help elucidate the topic. Um, I hope you enjoyed this rather scathing review of how free energy works and how it completes the picture of how energy, how we know energy works. Because when we send energy through a circuit, uh, we don't try to destroy the circuit and we try to get multiple uses out of the circuit so that it can last us a long time, hopefully. Not our battery pack and our EV. <laughs> Oh boy, that's, that's uh, been designed to uh, wear out fairly quickly. And that's why we have lithium batteries. You didn't know that, did you? It's because nickel metal hydride can be regenerated so many times that it can outlive the lifetime of the electric car that it is in, inside of. That's why various oil companies had to sue or threaten suit against General Motors, against Toyota, against making any more nickel metal hydride batteries for their cars, so that the only nickel metal hydride battery you can get are little 9-volt batteries online. That's it. And Panasonic in Germany makes them, but, uh, you know, 95-amp-hour, 12-volt batteries, but they won't fit in the RAV4 EV from 2002. They're off by one inch in two different dimensions. And they won't sell it to you for that reason, because it won't fit. Great. <laughs> hey, I'm telling you. It is good to see, though, that Who Killed the Electric Car, despite the fact there's no free copy anymore on YouTube to watch, you have to pay a few bucks to see it. There are people who are reviving the topic, referring to that original source material loosely, without giving credit, sort of. Um but allowing you to watch their latest upda uh, updated version for free. I just saw one today, and I'm going to put the link in the description of this recording so you can watch what I watched. It's appalling. It's disgusting. But people need to know, sort of. I mean, it really doesn't talk about the battery technology, how that was wiped off the face of this planet. 
um, it, that's unfortunate uh, hole <laughs> of ignorance in that movie. But I'll give you the link anyway. It does talk about all the backs story of how Joan Motors never intended the EV1 to be successful from the get-go. And this, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this, hopefully, because there's no maintenance on an EV to speak of. And this was part of their business model, was to make money off of the dealer servicing your internal combustion engine car, oriented car, and making money in this, from the service department. And without that income, if we should all switch over to EVs, it didn't like that. So it never intended to sell the EV1. It always intended to lease without option to buy and recall it after a certain length of time and crush them all. They always, that was internal memos they discovered. So it's, they've always intended to do that. And that's what is such a shocker. But it shows you the state of mind of the auto manufacturers. They look at the profit margin and that's all they care about. What can they get away with? Because we let them, because we're ignorant. We're ignorant. And I can talk till I'm blue in the face, but if you don't believe a word I say, then we're going to remain ignorant and progress is going to continue to be very, very slow. I mean, you'll be lucky in your lifetime to see any progress of any significant amount unless something radical should change and remove all of these big institutions that are literally throttling progress. You know, they were great in the beginning. They helped progress, you know, a few centuries ago. But now they just get in the way. That's all they do. Because we are learning so much faster than what we implement, change, execute change of what we've learned. I mean, it's our um, consumerism is not keeping up with our knowledge increase. And it doesn't help when we're given a paucity of information or uh, outright lies in many cases to keep us ignorant, such as this conservation of energy business. You know, conservation of energy is like looking through a narrow slit, and all you see is what you can see through that narrow slit, and everything else you're ignorant of. That's literally, and that's the way knowledge in the United States, or uh, concurrent knowledge, uh, current event knowledge, is dealt with in the United States. We're kept ignorant while in foreign countries they know more about us than we do. Now I'll shut up. Did I forget to mention that the only reason why pure copper bonds with each other to create copper wire is because of the paucity of energy in those valence electron bonds? It's sharing in order to make up the difference of the energy that's missing. And so when the energy gets supplied, that's when the wire explodes because it can no longer share because it no longer has a paucity of energy. It has enough energy for the copper atoms to exist separate from each other. And uh, also because they all have the same charge, so it causes them to want to repel each other as, as well.